Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode number 14. I'm your host, Derek Moore. Today, we'll be really talking about risk-adjusted returns and benchmarking. And when people say risk-adjusted returns, what do they mean? You know, a lot of people are always comparing their portfolios against the overall S&P 500 index, which, of course, many people deem the overall market. But the reality is that not everyone's portfolio uh, matches up as well with just the S&P. For example, if you're invested in different areas or types of investments, the S&P 500 is really only the U.S. large cap. And although certainly they have exposure to, to foreign countries with when they sell goods, certainly Apple's an American company, they do things all over the world, it really is only measuring as a benchmark that U.S. large cap equity region. So, uh Let's talk a little bit about benchmarking and about what the heck are risk-adjusted returns, standard deviation, risk-free rates, and average annual returns. And so, as I said, I mean, many times people are kind of hung up on the fact that, hey, did my portfolio beat the market? Did my investment beat the market? And a good example I always kind of give people is a little bit of a ridiculous example, but... It's the idea of, let's say, some investor holds you know, a basket of New Zealand mining companies or New Zealand real estate companies. And they said, wow, you know, we did better than the S&P 500. We beat the market. But the S&P 500 certainly is completely different than a bunch of New Zealand real estate companies. There's probably a different benchmark or an index that's made up of those types of companies and those types of weightings that would be more appropriate. And by the way, the reality is most investors nowadays are simply buying some derivation of an index. And so, for example, somebody in a 401k plan that's contributing money on a monthly basis, and they go into the one one of those age-based accounts, all they're simply doing is probably buying some index funds that mirror the, you know, the S&P 500 or the U.S. aggregate bond index or some other index. And so, if you're benchmarking and you're benchmarking in percentages, you're probably essentially just buying the uh, the index. And so, uh, but one of the things you do here, though, is this idea of passive versus active management. And passive management is simply people go in, they buy whatever's in the index, and or they buy an ETF that tracks the index, and whatever's in there is in there, and there's no sort of decision tree or figuring out what to buy or sell. And passive management tends to do pretty well or outperform active management, especially when um, there are times of larger, you know, correlation, positive correlation, meaning a lot of stuff is going up at the same time. And passive indexing funds, uh, they tend to outperform during those periods. But in periods of non-correlation, there's a difference. And the fact remains too often people look at their entire portfolio and just try and say, does it beat or exceed or not exceed the market. And a good example of that too is, let's say you're holding the old 60-40 U.S. large cap and 40% U.S. 10-year treasuries or 40% in the aggregate bond index, which is corporates and treasuries and you know, a bunch of other things too. And you would say, well, you know, I, I beat or I didn't beat the market. Well, that a 60-40 portfolio, a more appropriate benchmark would be a 60% weighted uh, to the S&P 500 index and a 40% to the U.S. aggregate bond index. You see where I'm getting at here. It's not necessarily appropriate 
to use a benchmark like the S&P 500 for every investment type that you have because it's not apples to apples, it's apples to oranges. But we think about, you know, people look at, at benchmarking and they look at trying to see whether it's doing better or worse than the market. But the other side of this equation is looking at portfolio return evaluations and trying to figure out what type of movement or volatility an investor experienced. And so a good way of, of putting this is I used to travel quite a bit and I made the example in my, my book and, uh, you know, taking a flight from, let's say, Phoenix to Miami, one flight, really, really smooth, nothing going on, seatbelt sign was off the whole time. And the next time I flew from Phoenix to Miami, flew through thunderstorms, tons of turbulence, a lot of quote unquote volatility, right? The ride was much rougher. And so even though it took roughly the same amount of time to get there, I would say the first flight was not eventful and low volatility. And the second flight was pretty eventful and it had high volatility. And so one of the things that investors, uh, large institutions and people looking at markets try and do is they try and figure out how can we evaluate a portfolio to understand how much risk and by risk, generally they're talking about the variance or the standard deviation, really how much of a roller coaster ride did the investor experience to get that return. And so risk adjusted returns is really one of the ways to evaluate how much the return has been relative to the risk, how the returns generated align with what one needs to grow their assets before and in retirement? Well, that might be a different story, but have returns increased or decreased the probability of meeting goals for their assets? Well, those are all sort of goals, but the thing that risk-adjusted returns are trying to figure out is what's the, the highest return you can get with the least amount of volatility? Well, that sounds interesting, right? Uh, but a lot of investors don't want really large swings and especially don't want downside volatility. Most investors probably would be okay outperforming to the upside, meaning we were only expected to earn X and we went way, way above that. It's the downside volatility they don't want. But as I'll talk about later, believe it or not, increased upside can actually increase the standard deviation. That'll make sense in a second. But one of the ways that people look to evaluate portfolios is they learn how to calculate not only the risk-adjusted return, but also on potential um, investment strategies to filter out a lot of the noise and, and try and sort of evaluate one versus another. And so, if, like I said, if you ask most investors whether or not they'd enjoy wild swings in the value of their investments, they probably say no. And that idea of having the highest possible return with the least amount of risk is kind of like the unicorn of investing strategies. You want tons of return and no risk. We all know that doesn't necessarily exist in the investment world. But risk-adjusted returns are used to quantify a couple factors that attempt to evaluate not which strategy returns the most percent gain over a period, but the best risk-adjusted return. And so say one strategy has an average annualized return of 10%, and the other strategy has an average annualized return of 12%. So not too bad, right? 2% difference there. 
And without any other information, we might assume the one earning 12% is better. It's higher. But what if I told you that the standard deviation of the 10% return was 11%? And by standard deviation, how much volatility around the average does somebody experience? And the second one, the 12% return, their standard deviation was 20%. So 10% return with 11% standard deviation versus 12% return with a deviation, standard deviation of 20%. Well, the former strategy had a better risk-adjusted return, even though its average annualized return was less. And the reason why, there was less volatility experienced by the investor to achieve that return. So in theory, the first strategy is better from a risk-adjusted basis. So a couple things, though. In evaluating what risk was taken to produce returns, professionals have used a number of financial metrics looking to quantify performance. There are drawbacks, of course. And one of the main drawbacks is, well, you know, as I've always said, every investor prospectus says past performance is not indicative of future returns. Of course, we all know that Many people look at historical returns to try and figure out what an expected return is going forward. But when we're evaluating many years of historical returns to try and gauge future results, the advanced risk analytics, they might only give investors an idea of how an approach has performed in the past, not in the future, in the past. And really long timeframes of historical returns they might not give investors a lot of certainty with what they might expect over you know, a 10, 15, or 20-year period. And remember that you know, the goal is to sort of save enough money for retirement, to grow the assets. And I always say there's three different really phases for an investor. There's the accumulation phase. There's what I call a basing phase. And then the, there's a really that final push Um, in that basing phase to get up to a number that requires a level at which an investor can withdraw money from the account and live off. And that's the distribution phase. The other thing that really long historical returns don't necessarily take into account, uh, at least sort of behind the scenes, is what interest rates were. And interest rates matter because the higher the interest rate, the less future earnings and dividends can be valued on a stock, at least you know, in a theoretical textbook uh, version of that definition. Uh, but also which asset classes are preferred. Certainly if you could buy and if you could go back in time, you'd probably put everything into the 15% 30-year treasury bond and just call it a day and for the next 30 years. But it doesn't take it count of really where interest rates were. Uh, But, you know, despite the drawbacks, uh, breaking down some of the numbers is a way to sort of evaluate different strategies on a risk-adjusted basis. And so there are some popular ratios. One of them I'll talk about in a second is the Sharpe ratio. And one of the things you have to understand first is this idea about a standard deviation. What does that mean? So, Let's pretend we're not talking about stocks. and Instead, we're talking about the temperature outside. So let's say that, uh, you know, one day the temperature is 99 degrees Fahrenheit. And the next day, the, I don't know, the temperature goes to 101. 
You add those two together, it's 200. And if you divide by two, the simple average would be 100 degrees. Okay. But here's the thing. Um, what if we said there was one day at 80 degrees, the second day at 120? Well, that's quite a bit of fluctuation compared to the first one. And yet the average temperature, average temperature we saw would actually be the same. 80 plus 120 is 200 divided by 2 is 100. But wait a second. The second example had much greater fluctuation. 99 and 100 is a small range. 80 and 120 degrees is a much wider range. But the simple average is the same. And so to try and account for that, what the standard deviation does, it says, what's the average? In this case, they're both 100. Um, but then they look at what the standard deviation was above or below the average. And so on the second one, that standard deviation was 20. On the first one, you know, it's only one. And so thinking about this in portfolio terms, imagine that we took a look at two different portfolios. And we'd say portfolio A, the average annual return was 7.52%. The standard deviation is 18.02%. Remember, standard deviations really looking at uh, how much does do the returns deviate from the simple average or the mean? So 7.52, 18.02% standard deviation. The second portfolio returned 6.65% average annual return, but its standard deviation was only 6.68%. And so that tells you that while the return was less, the volatility vis-a-vis -vis the standard deviation was much more. Um, and so, sorry, the, the backwards, right? The, the return was higher in portfolio A. The standard deviation of 18.02% was higher than the standard deviation of 6.65% or 6.68% when the annual return was 6.65. In other words, uh, without <laughs> redoing this and editing it, portfolio A, you had a higher return, but much greater volatility. Portfolio B, you had a lower return, but the volatility was less than half the one of the first. And so one of the ways to look at two different portfolios and try and evaluate them is to use something called a sharp ratio. And the sharp ratio does a couple things. It brings into account the annualized rate of return, the standard deviation of the annual return. Now, at least we're, we're doing these on an annual basis and the risk-free rate of return. And so the sharp ratio is really the average rate of return minus the risk-free rate divided by the standard deviation. The higher the sharp, the better the risk-adjusted return is, at least according to sharp. And the lower uh, sharp ratio, the less desirable risk-adjusted return. Now, we say risk-adjusted return, generally we're using something like a three-month treasury bill. Treasuries have virtually no risk of defaulting. Uh, we can always print money, certainly, at the Treasury. Uh, we might devalue the currency, but there's uh, there's not much risk of U.S. Treasury bills defaulting. Some people say, well, why do you use three months if we have a year holding period or a 10-year holding period? You can use you know, higher ones, but generally it's, it's somewhere between three months to a year. The problem with using, let's say, 10 or 30-year Treasuries is you've got a lot more interest rate variability or interest rate risk. Uh, that comes into play there. So it's really not as risk-free since it's a little more known over a short time.
And so if we look at that portfolio A, that returned us 7.52 and a standard deviation of 18.02, we know that the uh, sharp ratio on that one was 0.36. On the second one, the sharp ratio is 0.85. So even though that portfolio B returned less than portfolio A, on a risk-adjusted basis, on a risk-adjusted basis, it performed better given a risk-adjusted uh, return. And so that's sort of an example of, a uh, real quick example of what happens when you're trying to evaluate two portfolios or trying to evaluate the risk-adjusted return on an investment. And so Look, I mean, there, there's other ones that do this. Uh, I'll probably put a link to it. The Sortino ratio, which actually doesn't care about, um, you know, upside deviation. It only cares about downside deviation. It would be a little too intricate to explain that without some graphs. So I'll put a link to the Sortino ratio. There's other ratios that are out there. But the point is a couple things. Number one is when investors are benchmarking, don't always benchmark against the S&P 500. You might have an investment that has a different benchmark. For example, short volatility strategies, uh, like the ones that, uh, that I use sometimes for a portion of clients' assets, those uh, have a CBOE put writing index that can be used as a benchmark. If there's a hedged equity investment, that may have something more akin to, uh, you know, a benchmark that has some bonds in it or or some other benchmark, right? It's not always the S&P 500. The second thing is the risk-free rate. The risk-free rate is what you could get right now over the short term in U.S. Treasury bills or bonds. And what's the rate of return? The idea of knowing that is, look, let's say you could get three months on an annual basis using Treasury bills and you return 3% while taking some risk. You'd say, well, why would I take any risk? Uh, I could just get 3% anyway. And then the other thing is the whole idea of standard deviation. And standard deviation just says, what's the average? And then how far does it deviate from the average? Meaning how far away, up or down, does it go? And I'll leave with this. One of the things that Sharp does uh, or does not do, it does not discriminate between upside deviation and downside deviation. Remember I said most investors would be thrilled to have a portfolio that went up 50% in one year or something like that, right? But if let's, let's say your average annual return was something like 10% and then you have a plus 50 year, your standard deviation will actually increase. And so that's why some investors look at something like a Sortino ratio, which does discriminate between upside deviation and downside deviation as maybe a better measure of investor appetite for risk. Take a look at those. I'll put some links in the uh, in the section where I usually link to things. And with that, I'll probably call this one kits, quits. As you can see, uh, my voice is struggling this week. Been a little bit under the weather, but uh, we kept it together for around 20 minutes. Folks, we'll see everyone next week. Have a good one. 